0: have that benediction will be gone. <laughs> mm. Let's pray to our risen king. Jesus, you are worthy of our grandest, loudest, most enthusiastic worship. Because you rose and all that you promised was stamped true. And we were granted a hope that transcends um, the unthinkable. And so we worship you. And now, Lord, take, take your word, take this story of your resurrection from your word and um, drive our doubts away uh, so that on the darkest of days, Our hope will prevail. Um, So, now by your spirit and your word, do do your work, Christ, we pray. Amen. So, there's an author, his name is Stephen James, and he, he writes that one day he arrived home, he turned on the TV and a commercial came on for life insurance. Guy walks onto the set all somber looking and explains the benefits of their policy And then he says that I should sign up my family so they'll be taken care of in case the unthinkable should happen. He says, of course, by the unthinkable, he means just in case you die. He says, but the thing is, death isn't unthinkable. It's inevitable, right? Um, Comedian and filmmaker Woody Allen, he put it this way. He says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. Okay. I think these reflect uh, our, our, the way we think about death. It's unthinkable, perhaps because no one wants to think about it. And so there's all kinds of strategies that have been developed to help us not think about the unthinkable. Um, there's a funeral home in South Carolina that uses distraction as their strategy. They, they're planning to open what's called a coffee corner uh, there at the funeral home, and it will be stocked with Starbucks coffee and offer Wi-Fi as well as a fireplace and a television, just in case on your lunch break you want to go down and hang out at the funeral home. You know, um, the idea the funeral home director says is that he hopes it will help mourners get their minds off of what's going on, the unthinkable, right? Local news magazine welcomed people to submit a name for this novel cafe. Here are here's some of the names that were submitted. This is these are the honorable mention category. The Grim Roaster (laughs) (laughs) Decoffinated Purgatory (laughs) Being Nice Knowing You and Latte. Now, the, the, the winner, though, the one that took first place is this one, time to meet your mocha. <laughs> um, you know, not everybody's denying death. Um, some have come up with alternative strategies to deal with it. Um, they've acknowledge that death is going to happen. In fact, they anticipate that we're all going to wipe each other out, either by some environmental disaster or some nuclear war or something like that. And so they have developed plans to help us um, address that. And uh, there's an article in the Associated Press, and this is actually a true story. um, It says, somehow after the unthinkable happens, we have to find a way to resurrect humanity. Enter comedian uh, Stephen Colbert the host of CBS, The Late Show. Now, the article says that the man has DNA and someone thinks his DNA is the perfect seed for a new humanity. (laughs) Seriously, um, I'm I'm not making this up. In the fall of 2008, Colbert's DNA was digitized and sent to the International Space Station to be kept in a time capsule. The courier for the DNA was video game tycoon Richard Garriott, who spent 10 days in space in October of 2008 as a space tourist. In a statement, Garriott explained, in the unlikely event that Earth and humanity are destroyed, mankind can be resurrected with Stephen Colbert's DNA. (laughs) He says, this is true. I hope it's not serious, but it's true. He says, is there a better person for us to turn to for this high-level responsibility than Stephen Colbert? And uh, today, I would like to commend happily to you a better person for that high-level responsibility. His name is Jesus the Christ, and though he was dead, he is alive. Okay? Um, Let's just listen to the story. It comes from Luke's gospel uh, in the New Testament of the Bible. It goes like this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, while they were perplexed about this, behold... If you can you give me that next slide, please? Thank you. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is our great hope. It is a hope far better than Stephen Colbert's DNA, right? It is the sure hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to pick up that story that we just read this morning, not on Easter morning, but later that afternoon where two of Jesus' followers are walking along one of the dusty roads just outside of Jerusalem, um, which is the city where the events of that morning and that entire weekend had unfolded, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and such. But what I'd like to do instead of reading it to you, I'd like you to listen to a very helpful British retelling of the story. So just watch the screen.
1: And two of Jesus' friends are walking back from Jerusalem to Emmaus, their village. They're walking slowly, they're talking over the things that have happened, they're sad and low. And Jesus turns up walking next to them, but they're kept from recognising that it's him. And he says, what are you talking about? They look at him with open mouths. Are you the only stranger, says Cleopas, who doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem these past few days? So tell me about it, fill me in, says Jesus. And he says, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, he was mighty in word and deed, with a great reputation with all the people. We thought he was the one. We hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. But the leaders took him. They took him and tried him and handed him over to the Romans for execution. He died. And all of this was three days ago. And what's worse, this morning, some of the women came and freaked us out. They told us they went to find his body and it was gone, that the tomb was open. And then they said something about angels and angel voices and that they saw Jesus. And so others ran to see if what they'd said was true. And they found the tomb empty, but Jesus wasn't there. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that was written in the scriptures. Didn't it have to be this way? Didn't the Messiah have to suffer before he'd be glorified? And starting with Moses and working through the scriptures, he told them all the things about himself that were there and were to happen and had happened. And as they got to Emmaus, Jesus was going to carry on. And they stopped him and said, come on, it's late, it's dark, come in, eat with us, stay with us tonight. And he went in, and as they sat down to eat, Jesus took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And that was the moment. They knew it was him. They realized, they saw him, they recognized him, and he disappeared, just vanished. And the two of them jumped up and ran all the way back to Jerusalem. The seven miles they'd already come, they went back. And they found all of the others together in a room. And they were saying, it's true. He's appeared to Simon. He's alive. Jesus is alive. And the two said, we've just seen him on the road and we didn't know it was him. But when he broke the bread, we knew it was Jesus.
0: Well, if you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, you find that story uh, that she's retelling. It's called this, the Emmaus Road story uh, a lot of times. I'd like this morning just for us to walk through that together. It's an absolutely fascinating encounter that these two disciples had with Jesus on, on this afternoon, uh, Easter afternoon. Starting in verse 13 of Luke 24, it says, That very day two of them, two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, the discussion, based on the, the way it's described here, was likely a vigorous one. Um, but I think above all, it was a sad one. Um, and I say that for a couple reasons. One, if you drop down just a couple of verses in verse 17, Luke, the writer of this account, tells us they were looking sad. Um, but, but the other indicator uh, of their disposition is their direction. See, in Matthew's account of the resurrection, we find the angels giving some very specific instructions post-resurrection To these women, in Matthew 28, the angel says to the women, this is after the resurrection, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So essentially he says, Jesus has risen, he is waiting for you in Galilee, get the boys in Jerusalem, go to Galilee. Now these two disciples, the problem is um, they are not headed to Galilee, they are headed to Emmaus. It's the Emmaus road that they are on. We don't know why, quite possibly they were from Emmaus. Um, and it's, it's hard to know exactly where Emmaus is, but we do know that it is likely nowhere near Galilee. The best guess is that Emmaus was about seven miles west from Jerusalem, okay? while Galilee was more like 70 miles north. So this would be like walking to Richmond by going through Durham. Okay? It's not, they're not on their way to Richmond. They're not on their way to Galilee. Um, This is not a walk of faith and joy at the news of the resurrected Christ. This is two despondent followers with no one to follow anymore. Their Savior was just crucified. And now they're likely headed home, tails between their legs. And the story, though, takes an unexpected twist in verse 15 of chapter 24. It says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And again, we see there the depth of their sorrow. And I'm sure this was the worst weekend of their life. You think about just the names of the days. Maundy Thursday, when Jesus was betrayed. Good Friday, when he was crucified. Black Saturday, when he stayed dead. Okay. And now, the following Sunday. Um, everything had come tumbling down. Every hope was destroyed. It's precisely at their lowest point that Jesus comes to them. Um, and, and you really think about that for a second. Um, the resurrected Christ comes to two low-level disciples at best um one we don't even know his or her name and the other one um cleopas that this is the only place he's named in the new testament um and yet the risen christ seeks these two out and spends the entire afternoon with them um so you ever thought about the people that Jesus pers- chose to pursue during his 40 days? You know, that you've got the great, the great shuns, right, of the Easter story, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then you have the ascension 40 days later, after, after that. And you ever wonder why Jesus stuck around for 40 days? And it's interesting to look at the encounters that he had. He, he arranges appointments with people like Peter, who had denied him three times. During his greatest time of need, Um, his brother James, who doubted him. Um, A man we know as Doubting Thomas gets a special encounter with Jesus. A group of women, these first witnesses, who were not exactly the upper tier of society in their day. He doesn't go to Herod, he doesn't go to Pilate, the Roman governor, he doesn't seek out Caiaphas or Annas, the high priest. Jesus seeks out very ordinary folk honestly people like you and me and he helps them believe that's what the resurrected Jesus does for 40 days he's seeking out regular everyday disciples folk like you and me and he helps us believe and if we believe this it changes everything This is a hope far greater than Stephen Colbert's DNA, right? Verse 18. One of the two, named Cleopas, answered Jesus, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now think about this conversation that's going on here. They're talking to Jesus. And they don't recognize it a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel yes and besides all this it is now the third day since these things have happened so clearly again their greatest hopes have been greatly destroyed the great prophet whom they hoped would be the Redeemer of Israel, had been horribly killed. And I, and I imagine that they are con, their confusion at this point and their disappointment has to be tangled up with God. How could God let this happen? Does He not care? Is He too small or too old or too preoccupied with some other matter? Um, why would God allow this Holy One To be crucified. They couldn't understand it. And they said, and now it's been three days since this has happened. And that may well just be saying, surely you've heard of it. It's been three days now. The news is everywhere. But we are thinking, when we read it's been three days, we're thinking, wait a minute, the third day, right? Let's see. This is the third day. So Jesus said he would rise on the Third day, back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus charged and commanded his disciples to tell this to no one and he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's a prediction long before that time when he was crucified. The angels then repeated that at the tomb to the women that he would rise on the third day. Remember in Luke, we read it earlier. They told the women he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So we're thinking Friday, Saturday, Sunday, this is the third day. But their grief is so overwhelming to them that they couldn't see that Jesus was doing just what he pledged to do. He was standing right in front of them. And grief and loss can do that sometimes to us. God can seem very hidden when he's in fact most present in our lives. it's an it's interesting it's an expression. We use it positively, like, um, weren't the Tar Heels amazing in the tournament, right? We would we'd use it that way. It's a positive thing. Um, but it's not always, their language is not always a positive expression. It can have a very different edge to it. For instance, in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus' family heard about what Jesus was doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The language there is, for they were saying, he's amazing. Okay. It can have that kind of um, out of his mind kind of meaning when something baffling happens. Like uh, when your teenage son decides to cut his own hair and you say, that's amazing. <laughs> what were you thinking? You know? Um, so I wonder if that's kind of what, when they say that the women have amazed us, they don't mean something like the women have lost their senses, especially when we see how the women were received back in verses nine through 11. You remember, we read it earlier. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale they did not believe them. Um, it's interesting, some commentators suggest that uh, the two disciples on the road, one is nameless, Cleopas is male, um, the other one we don't know, um, could have been a husband and wife walking along the road, which once the women's story was corroborated, don't you know there was a whole lot of I told you so going on, if that was in fact uh, the conversation that they may have been having. But in spite of all this, these two disciples are still in disbelief. They're looking sad. They're headed on the road of unbelief. They're going to Emmaus. They're not going to Galilee. And I wonder if they were thinking, gosh, if only we had been there. If only we had seen Jesus. If only somebody other than those hysterical women had seen him. And um, just as an aside, general rule of thumb guys, when it comes to spiritual insights, believe the women. Okay, it's just a good practice. When it comes to spiritual insights, believe the women. Um, So they're thinking, if only we'd been there, if only we had seen him, if only we could like talk to him. If only like we could go for a long walk and have a conversation with Jesus. Then, you know, and you're thinking, kind of like what's happening right now, guys, you know. Um, But they still don't get it. And at this point, the resurrected Christ gives them exactly what they need so that they can believe. Verse 25 in Luke 24, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. First, he takes them to task for being so thick-headed and unbelieving. Again, the Hawaii pigeon version is as colorful as ever. It reads like this. Then um, Jesus the two guys, you guys no tink, you hardhead. Right? Um, but then he says though, but beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so as they, as they walk along the way, Jesus shows them how the whole Old Testament was a time of pointing and a time of getting ready for Jesus to come, for the Messiah to come, and that he had to suffer and die to bear the sins of men and women, and then be raised again. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know what Jesus said, but I, I wonder if he told them about the Passover and how God's people were spared by the blood of the lamb put on the, on the doorpost. And he said, and, and he told them now, uh, he is that lamb. And if you told them about how when they, in the time of the Exodus when people were spared from a life-threatening plague by looking at a serpent that was lifted up on a, on a pole, just looking in faith, and they were saved from that plague. And how he now is, is lifted up on a tree to spare them for the penalty from their sin. And, or maybe he told them about Isaiah, who you know, some five, 700 years before their time prophesied about a suffering servant and Isaiah 53 it says he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord laid on him the iniquity of us all and so the risen christ walks that dusty road with two virtually unknown disciples, and he explains to them how the whole Old Testament was pointing towards him so that they could believe. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, "'Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent.' And so he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them.'" And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So now they see, okay, at last, now they get it. And through Jesus' careful divine explanation of what the Bible had said about his suffering and glory and then through the breaking of the bread, interestingly enough, Something about the way he broke the bread and blessed it. And maybe they had heard about that last supper with the disciples. And they heard the language there. Maybe they remembered the feeding of the 5,000 where he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. Perhaps they had been there. Perhaps it was just the intimacy of sitting down with Jesus at a shared meal. But this is what they needed and that's what Jesus gave to them. In verse 33, it says, They rose that same hour, they returned to Jerusalem, they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the baking of the bread. And so, their direction changes. Do you notice? They're leaving Emmaus, and they go back to Jerusalem. Um, this is probably the fastest 10K these guys have ever run. Um, everything's turned around now. Um, their direction now is one of hope, not of sadness and sorrow. They head not for Emmaus. They go back to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem's where their friends were who so desperately needed this same hope. Peter and Thomas and the women and James, and they were all there. And they needed to know that he had really risen and, and that they didn't have to despair anymore. They had really risen and they had seen him on the road. So let's draw some lessons from this encounter with Jesus. Um, what do we make of this story? First, I want, I want you to make sure you understand this is not just any kind of story. It's put to us as a true story um, Luke is acting by his own admission as a historian. This is how he starts his gospel, his record of Christ's life. He says in chapter 1, "...it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus," his friend, "...that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." So this is not fiction, this is not a novel. He is writing, researching, carefully thinking about the things and, and presenting them as true, a true story. And even then, it's not just any true story. It's given as a true story that will help us believe just like it did those two on the Emmaus Road and the ones in the upper room and countless followers of Jesus throughout history. So some implications. First, This is some amazing portrait of Jesus, isn't it? If you stop and think about it, um, let me be Captain Obvious first. He's alive, okay? That's pretty amazing. He's not here. He has risen, it says, after suffering a horrific death on a Roman cross, laying for three days in a cold tomb of death. He's alive and walking and talking and breaking bread. As the risen Savior of the world, I'm a little in awe that, like, one of the first things on his agenda, he'll take his whole first afternoon and seek out two disciples. One, we know is hear his name once, and the other's nameless guy. And he wants to spend the entire afternoon with two very ordinary disciples, helping them believe. Um, The risen Savior of the world, searching out to sorry, thick, depressed, unbelieving disciples that look an awful lot like who you and me, who you and I see in the mirror every morning. And Jesus values them so much that he would pursue them in this way. Um, It's pretty amazing to me. It helps me believe that Jesus is very interested in just everyday folk, that he wants us to believe. He cares for nobodies like you and me, such that risen from the dead, he would give his time. And I do think we, in addition to that amazing portrait of Jesus, I see um, that we're a lot like these two travelers More than we know, most of us, we are a people in need of a hope that transcends death. Just two days ago, in this room, we conducted a funeral for a 35-year-old husband and father of three remarkable young girls under the age of 10. Um, And I can tell you, and that family would tell you, Life is so fragile. And when you face death, you don't want to face it without a sure hope of resurrection. Okay. Um, I don't know how people do it without a sure hope. You know, my, my atheist buddy, um, when he thinks about death, he quotes Disney. He says, circle of life. We can do better than Disney, okay? We have a sure hope that comes to us through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. His resurrection assures the resurrection of anyone who follows him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, You don't want to face death without that great and sure hope of life that transcends even the grave. And um, you know, the resurrection of Jesus brings hope that even death cannot thwart God's good plan. The resurrection of Jesus brings hope that even when it seems the exact opposite, God is in fact at work to bring the greatest good to those who love Him. See, we are like those travelers on that road. We will all walk the Emmaus road of hopelessness and, and doubt. And we so need the hope of resurrection on that day. Now, another thing that you, as you read the story kind of jumps off the page at you, um, you know, the Bible is really essential if you're going to make sense out of God, right? Um, Jesus sure seems to feel that way, doesn't he? Uh, he spends... Who knows how many hours explaining the scriptures to these two? That's what he does. He doesn't make up new stuff. He says, Let me tell you what the prophets have said about me. And he goes back to the Old Testament, the Bible, and he explains it to them. And he does it again in the encounter that follows this one. The next Sunday, when he gets together with the disciples, As the resurrected Christ, he appears to them again, and he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So, you know, in light of this, some of you are low on hope today, not because of your suffering or because that God has failed you in some way. It is because, as Jesus put it, how foolish you are and how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay. You are trying to find and know God without understanding the scriptures. And Jesus. invests hours with these two, explaining the Bible to them. Clearly, he believes it to be essential in making sense out of God and what he's doing in our world. So if you want to know God, open your Bible and read. Um, We desperately need the hope that it promises, especially on hard days. Run to the Bible. Seek God there. Let us help you. On the back of your uh, bulletin this morning, there's emails for a number of our pastors. Um, Email us. Say, I'd like to get together and try to make sense out of what the Bible says about how I can know God. We would love to spend that time with you. Last last thing, though, that we'll draw out of this story this morning is, hey, these, these two guys were changed by this. They didn't just say, well, wasn't that fascinating? Let's just stay in Emmaus and mope around a bit. Okay? They booked it back to Jerusalem, right? Uh, you know, they, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They went from hopeless to bearers of hope. No longer were they driven by despair. Now they're driven by hope. And it was a hope that they had to share. They knew that there was an upper room full of people in Jerusalem who were in desperate need of that hope that Jesus had in fact risen. That the promises had come true. And my bet is this morning that you have someone in your life who needs this hope. You work with them. You go to school with them. They live next to you. They may be sitting next to you this morning. And they need this hope, the hope of a risen Savior. And God is calling you to change directions and bear that hope to them, to share with them really good news, that death is not all sorrow and end. Um, Maybe, maybe you are that someone this morning. Maybe you're the person who needs that hope Personally, the hope that comes from believing that Christ died for your sins and he rose from the dead on the third day. And um, it's available for you today. Okay. On Easter Sunday, it's a great day to believe and trust Christ. I'm talking about something more than coming to church. I'm talking about a transfer of your trust from you working to be good enough to acknowledging that you never will be and instead you trust Christ who died on the cross for the sins of the world and then he rose on the third day and verified that it's all true. To trust in Jesus' cross work as Savior and follow his plans as your Lord and leader. Let me close just by leading us in a prayer that acknowledges those things. If you'll bow with me, please. Lord, where, where could we turn today when we think about the unthinkable except to you? And uh, I want to pray specifically for those who are here who don't have an answer. They don't have a sure hope about the big things, about why they're here, and what they're to do, and what happens when they die. And so I pray now that you would hear their acknowledgement that they need a hope that's bigger than themselves. That on on our own, we are truly sinners. We've fallen short of your perfect standard. Can't work our way into your good graces. And God, I pray right now that you'd enable them just to trust, just to cast that care on you, that Christ did go to the cross to bear the sins that we could not bear. And uh, Lord, grant them newness of life. Lift that burden of sin from them forever. Give them the sure hope of life eternal that begins now with you. And God, for those of us who have this treasure, help us to bear it gladly. To friends and neighbors and co-workers and classmates who are waiting for it. Um, Some even around the world waiting for it. Help us be faithful. This we pray in his great and matchless name. The name of Jesus. Amen.